Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. And today, um, especially fathers, we are, we are walking through this series of spiritual disciplines. And today we, are happen, we happen to land on self-control. Um, I'll, I'll just say that's the, the leading of the Holy Spirit to engage in self-control on Father's Day. Um, and so the first test will be whether you throw these in the lobby or not, or whether you take it outside to throw with your children. But in any event, take this uh, maybe as a, as a physical uh, tool to be able to engage with children or grandchildren, whoever it might be. Or maybe it's just a reminder of the, the role that you can play and that you do play in the lives of young people, whether they are your children or whether, whether they're children that you step in and play that father figure role for. So Take one of these today as a gift for you. We're so glad you could join us this morning. Um, and as we, we engage in this service, I, I'm excited. This is actually the last of the inward um, uh, spiritual disciplines we're going to walk through. We are going to walk through outward spiritual disciplines, which are going to be somewhat community-oriented or corporate for us as a church, and then we'll do some forgotten ones as well that are both. But as we look at this specific idea of self-control, I'm just going to kind of jump right into it, and then uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through kind of a, an adventure trek together, uh, identifying and exploring the, the life of Jesus. But Self-control is, in essence, simply that important, uh, impressive, and nearly impossible practice of learning to maintain control of the beast of one's own sinful passions. Self-control, it means, remains uh, being the the master of your own territory, not just in the hunky-dory small places of life, but also in those giant trials that we face in those places of difficulty and beyond. This, for some, is that easier said than done place in life. Self-control is sometimes easy to say and easy to identify, but more difficult to live out. And this is far beyond just the fathers. This is for all of us as, as people, recognizing that there is areas in life where we must practice, we must work on, we must engage in self-control. Self-control can be taught and learned, and there's kind of a cause and effect to self-control. We recognize that God exists, at the same time, because of, and everybody can understand this, we, at the same time, because of where we are and because of what took place in the garden, we recognize that sin exists in the world. Further than that, we recognize that temptation, the window or the avenue for which sin enters into life, also exists. Temptation is, is the evil one's window to bring sin and to defy God. Sin exists through the window of temptation, and therefore God gives forth the opportunity for us to practice self-control to avoid falling into temptation and therefore practicing or engaging in sinful behavior. If God calls for self-control, and this is maybe the most promising and encouraging part of it, if God calls for us to experience and to practice self-control, then what that means is that self-control is possible. That's an amen moment. That's, a, that's a, okay. We know that this is actually possible because God's not going to call us to this thing. God's not going to, to lead us to do something if it's not possible to do. Yet sometimes we feel like self-control might be the most difficult thing that we practice on a daily basis. I've got a video here. And we're going to direct our attention to the screen. I want you to watch this as we illustrate sometimes what it feels like to practice self-control in the face of temptation. Let's watch that video. Okay, so that's your... All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. 
You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. Uh, it smells really So it's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> so there are several takeaways from this specific video. Perhaps you can relate to one or more of them. As it would appear, um, and I'll just say right now, this does have a pretty nice smell to it. I know what will happen if I eat it. I know uh, what will happen, especially if I shove the whole thing in my mouth, just like uh, that one boy did with two of them. But, man, it's an interesting thing to be able to set this marshmallow, this one temptation before a child and give them no time limit. Just say, okay, hold on as long as you can until I return, so to speak, which I think there are some spiritual implications there. But here is the marshmallow, and if you are able to just sit there, maybe look at it or avoid it or whatever it might be, as long as you don't eat it, you've got a greater reward. I think that there's some interesting implications. The biggest thing, though, that I learned, father of two redheads, is that last child there, if you didn't notice, 
didn't even allow the instructor to finish giving the rules before she already indulged and swallowed that whole marshmallow, which I think is also interesting as well. And that's kind of a sidebar, probably doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but it was a sermon in itself to me. Sometimes there are things in life, sometimes there are elements in life that we just can't stop touching, holding, smelling, and even kissing. There was the one child who did that as well. Today I want to walk through uh, specifically an adventure, so to speak, highlighting the example of Jesus as he engaged in a real self-control test moment. And before you pause and say, okay, well, you know, it's Jesus, I understand that. He's kind of got some other powers going on here. I don't know if this fully applies. Let me just say, hold on as we walk through the passage. And we'll recognize that in some ways it's even more difficult for Christ to engage self-control than it is for us. Luke chapter 22 highlights uh, a very... Uh, telling and transitional portion of Christ's ministry and of Christ's passion here on earth does smell good. And as we look at this passage together, we're going to kind of walk through some specific checkpoints on exactly what took place in the life of Christ and what took place in the life of those followers and disciples that were with him during this time. And so if you want to open your passage, uh, your Bible now to the passage we're going to read today, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. If you would like to uh, follow along on the screen, you can, or if you've got on your smart device, that's fine as well. 2247. It reads like this. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. So Jesus was in the middle of conversation. He was talking. He was engaging with the disciples, which we'll refer back to in a moment uh, using our SOAP method, right? Looking at the things that came before and came after. And here he's having this conversation only to be embraced by one of his own, one of his 12, who was leading some individuals towards him. He's in the second part of 47, it says, he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going, going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Should we attack? Should we step in? Should we do something here? And in verse 50, it says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no, none of, no more of this, and he touches the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And the first part of 54 says, Then Seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And that began, that kicked off, that was the start of Jesus' steps into engaging in the passion that he was called to embrace and to carry out and to live out for all humankind. One physical thing I didn't plan because I don't normally uh, do this is I, I've already recognized that this temptation right here has caused a kind of a 
little bit of chaos on how I arrange things up here, and, and there's less room for the word. Uh, so maybe a physical uh, metaphor there for me to be able to set this down even to engage. As we walk through this passage, that sidebar, oh, good rabbit trail, let me come back. Uh, as we walk through this passage, that, that interesting thing to note here is the impression or the, the physical uh, implication or the physical action that's taken by Jesus versus the physical action implication uh, from the disciples. Verse 47 once again reads, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who, call, who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? It's interesting to note right here, if you were to read between the lines or recognize what takes place here, that already temptation is rising up. There is an opportunity, a temptation for Jesus. He knows what is to take place. He knows what this whole thing is. He knows the handwriting is on the wall, so to speak, to use another biblical cliche. He knows what's going to happen. And here the temptation is already rising for him to allow his disciples to strike them, which probably would have been a, a, a bloody uh, battle. He could have just said, okay, you know what? I am God and I can just kind of walk away. I can disappear. I can, I can do whatever I want. But the temptation is there for him to do something other than step into the path that God had called for him, the Father had called for him to step, in, step into. Right here when it's least expected after he's concluded his time in prayer in the garden, probably most of us would say, well, why would temptation come? He's, he's close to God. He's, he's been praying. He's been engaging. He's been in his presence. Uh, but there's more. Wait for that in, in a moment. But the real temptation was not of the followers of Jesus. Instead, the real temptation here is of Jesus to be able to step away and say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to allow myself to be uh, to step in here because he, you know, he could be tempted to assert himself as the king. And so here we recognize the first point, temptation exists in the world. And it doesn't just exist for you and I here in this time and this day. It existed all the way from the beginning. In essence, we even see it here in the beginning or in part of Jesus' life, far beyond the beginning of the world, where he actually literally himself experienced temptation. I would venture to say that most people in this room or even on, that are joined online, we at some point, even today, and if not this week, have experienced temptation. Maybe it's a temptation where the, the, you know, the, that temptation's just been laid out on a, on a white plate. I should have brought a silver platter. Laid out on a white plate for us, and we see it, and we can touch it. We can, we can smell it. We can kiss it, which I'm not going to do. I don't want that still shot to be out there anywhere. But, you know, we have this temptation right there, right? Here's Pastor Steve kissing a marshmallow, right? So we have that temptation laid out before us. Now, let me just say, uh, just a, a side note, temptation is not in and, of, in and of itself sin, not until it's acted upon, but temptation exists. Am I right on that? Temptation is the evil one's window to bring sin and to defy God. And here was the window to bring sin into the world, which would have been bringing Christ to a place where he would fall short of the glory of God the Father, which was to be the Savior of all through being the sacrifice on the cross. And at the same time, to defy God by saying, I know you have a plan, but let me mess that up. Let me get rid of that. Let me, let me ruin that by tempting your son to do something other than what you've called him to do. To touch, to eat, to devour that marshmallow. 
The verse goes on, verse 49, it says, When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And here the question is posed, what do you want us to do? We're here, we're ready, we'll take action if you call us to do so. And verse 50 says, and when one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his his right ear. So right here we recognize, we focus on the temptation, not just of Jesus, but also the temptation of his followers. Now sure, they didn't know all, they didn't know everything about the plan of God. We didn't, we didn't know even in that video what the, what the amount of time was that this woman was going to take or what the plan was moving forward. They didn't know exactly what God had planned. But certainly in this specific situation, they were, they were, they were taking cues from, from what they believed to be the way that they would build the kingdom, which is a, a physical kingdom here on earth. And so if you take away Jesus, if you remove him, we're not going to have our king. And so we have to save him. We have to protect him. And so they even stepped in in their actions, attempting to try to protect Jesus. And once again, we recognize the fact that, and you probably know this just as well as I do, that temptation, temptation demands a response. There has to be some sort of response, and that can be good in in the honor of God and what he calls us to, or it can be bad, it can be selfish, it could be the way that, that Satan encourages or pulls us into Temptation will not stick around waiting for an answer for long. Instead, temptation requires that we act. Are we going to act by falling into it and allowing sin to reign supreme? Are we going to act by stepping back and allowing God to to, to bring forth this opportunity for us to practice self-control in our lives? Side note here that the, the disciples, while they were, they were trying to do what they thought was right, they literally fell into the temptation of, of not honoring God, not following what God had for that moment. Verse 51 continues, says, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Can I just say, just personally looking at this, if I were there that day and I was, you know, there to, to arrest Jesus, and at that moment, if, if, if I were there, and this is just me talking, this isn't in the scripture, but if, was, if I was there to arrest Jesus, and, and while I was there, the, 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 the disciples, the followers of Jesus, stepped forward and one of them cut my ear off, and then Jesus, the man that we are to take and to bring before the courts and to crucify and, and you know, to try and to unjustly and to crucify, and, and, and he, were, he were willing to step down and, or step out and touch my ear and heal me, I think... I think that I would, I would, I would, my perspective would change, that I would do differently. But, but it's interesting to note that the, that the same process still happened in, in a response. Instead, it's almost like what God is attempting to try to do here is communicate the reality that, that while you and I might even practice the right thing, while you and I might follow God's will, not fall into temptation, even though it brings a, 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 a deeper, more difficult burden upon us, God still is in control. God still reigns supreme. God still brings forth an opportunity for us to be able to experience his love and affection and his salvation. Jesus literally healed one of the men that was going to put him on trial to die. 
And sometimes we look at the temptation and we think, wow, you know what, it'd be tempting just to maybe fudge the numbers here or, or maybe tell this one little white lie or maybe to do my own thing. And we think, okay, it'll just kind of save me in the long run. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, look, I, I literally healed a person that was going to defy me. And, and let me just say, we know it worked out well for Christ, even though he had to walk through a pretty dark time in his life. And sometimes we might be tempted to try to avoid that dark time or to avoid what what consequences might come from being the person of integrity within the room. But in essence, if God calls you to it, and you've probably heard this cliche before, he'll see you through it. Jesus demonstrates, or his demonstration of how we can have self-control is an amazing one. The goal here. In all of it, it's not to avoid the darkness, not to avoid the difficulty, not to avoid the harsh words or the beating that he would take or eventual death that he would walk through. No, the goal is to glorify God. And that brings a whole new perspective on what it means to live our lives, especially living a life that honors God and a life that that practices real and lasting self-control. Because it puts that selfishness away, it puts away our own desires, our own, our, our, our own uh, agenda gets thrown away, and instead our focus becomes, how can I glorify God? Whether it's going to bring me pain, or bring a dark time, or going to be difficult for me to walk through, how can I glorify God? How can I love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and how can I love my neighbor, others, as myself? If that's our goal, then this, this right here fades away. And you saw in the video, some of the kids, they just try to look away. I, I, you know, I, I just, I'm trying to have the willpower to look away. If I just focus on something else, maybe it'll disappear. And, and you saw maybe some varying success there, but that's not the, ess- the essence of what it is. The essence isn't to try to avoid looking at the temptation or smelling it, which just does still smell good. Um, but th- to avoid you know, looking at or smelling the temptation, instead, it's about focusing on something totally different. Something greater, someone greater, the God of all, the God who loves us. And here's the deal as we kind of weave this back in once again. Self-control as we see it through Christ's action of bringing healing in the midst of his betrayers. Self-control is possible. He reveals that to us. Christ reveals that to us through his actions. And I know right now, some of you are thinking right now in this moment, wait, 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 wait. Well, this is Jesus. Of course, Jesus can have self-control. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God. And we'll just say a few things about him. Theologically, we know, or perhaps you don't, you've never heard this before, but, but Jesus himself has two natures. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. So therefore, he experiences and knows the, the human nature that we have the, the, to be exposed to and to experience temptation himself. And so we live through that. We experience that. The marshmallow was, so to speak, on the plate for Jesus himself. And as he walk through this moment right in this place right by itself, Jesus had actually what I would consider a greater, more difficult uh, moment of practicing self-control than you and I do. Because sometimes when temptation comes, it's simply, okay, am I going to fall into this sin or not? But if we compare ourselves to Jesus, he had the ability to be able to just wipe everybody else off the map and say, nope, this isn't how this is going to happen. 
And so Jesus' self-control is far beyond ours because he had to control both his, his physical human nature to say, okay, I'm not going to fall into temptation to, to, do the, you know, to, to escape this or to, to do ill will towards these people. But at the same time, he also had to curb his godly nature, his nature of being a god where he could just say, okay, angels, come take me out of here. I don't want to deal with this. I would say that most of us can relate to this. Nobody really probably can relate to what it means to curb a godly nature. And the God that we serve reveals to us this, this reality, in fact, that the purpose of self-control is to love God and to love others. Not to, to gain anything of ourselves or to walk through this, 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 this noteworthy path of recognizing the fact that, hey, I could have the power, maybe I don't have the power, whatever it is. If our goal certainly is to follow, to love, to engage with God, then the temptations before us do fade away. This puts a whole new sin, uh, spin on, on self-control and what it means. We don't do it for ourselves. Our effort should be that of serving and loving God. Even if we believe, and sometimes we might tell ourselves this, oh, it's a victimless crime. It's not going to hurt anyone else. If no one else finds out, it won't matter. Let me just say that is a lie of Satan because first of all, there are no victimless crimes. Certainly there is always a victim and it might just be you. And the other problem with that is because God created us to be a family, created us to, to, to live together as the family of God, if you are not living a life that's fully on fire for God, that actually hurts your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And so in essence, there's a trickle down. There's a rippling effect of, of not having a victimless crime because instead of you being the primary victim, everyone else is because you are not where God wants you to be in the same right. This is also a, a, an encouragement specifically looking at what it means to practice self-control, that this is a way that we glorify God through the fruit. We glorify him in our, in our world through his fruit. And in Galatians 5, and 23, it lists these specific fruits. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Why is it on there with hope and peace and forbearance? Well, all these are practices. All these are things that we have to live out. Why is self-control on there? Because God recognized the fact that it has real and lasting implications both in your life here on this earth uh, with the people around you and in your own life and also in eternity. All of the fruits of the Spirit go beyond simple uh, this, this time, this place, this created world that we live. They all go into our eternity. They're all about our lives as we pass from this life, our Spirit-driven life, into this next world. Why are the fruits of the Spirit? To love God, to love others. That's the purpose of them. That's why they're around. As the verse continues, it, it jumps into verse, or we're going to jump into verse 52. It says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard. And this is where he's basically said, Okay, we're not going to have a fight. We're not going to you know, throw down right here. Instead, here's what's going to happen. He, he moves forward. It says, The officers of the temple guard and the elders uh, who, have come, who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion? that you have come with swords and clubs. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but, in, but this is your hour, excuse me, when, when darkness reigns. At that point, what he's basically saying is, okay, this is the moment. 
This is what God has ordained. While there is a temptation here, I'm willing to say yes and to step forward in it. And then the next verse there reads, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And this starts, this, this begins, this, this interrogation, this unjust trial, this, this crucifixion, which also spins into the greatest action of history, which is for Jesus the, the creators, the, the, the son of the God that, that created us, the one who loves us, who entered into this world to beat death and to bring forth an opportunity for you and I to be able to experience real and lasting love and life because of his self-control. The start of Christ's ultimate demonstration of self-control. This self-control is not just keeping from doing right and wrong or stepping into temptation, but this recognition that God has a plan for us. He has a plan for you and a plan for me to live a life that honors him. And finding the source outside of ourself isn't recognizing the fact that you and I can just reject this marshmallow. Yeah, we could say, you know what? I, I don't want that. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it away or I could, I could throw it, but I'm not going to do that. I, I, I could put this anywhere I want to. But let me just say, if, if I do that, if I throw this away, if I get rid of this, even if I eat it, which is probably falling into the temptation, if I, if I eliminate the marshmallow, guess what? I did it. I did that. And if I do it, let me just say one of the things to recognize, if, if I'm the one that does this, then it's all about what I would consider, what you might have heard of, which is called just willpower. And if it's just about willpower, then we don't even really need a God. We don't need God to show us what to do or why to do it. We don't even have any reason even to honor God. But instead, it's just the things that I do or that, that you do rather than the way that God actually moves and transforms us. Therefore, it's not just about action. It's not just about the action that we take. It's about something much deeper than that. True self-control is about bringing ourselves under the, not under our own control, but under the control of the power of Jesus. Taking his example from this passage, but also recognizing the fact that he grants us real power, real and lasting power. Controlling one's own life presumes two things. Two specific things. The first one is control over one's own behavior, that outward behavior of saying no, of stepping away, of, 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 of eliminating the thing in our own life. But the second part is this. It's this internal pulse of recognizing that God is the one who brings forth the power, the will, the desire to say no to the temptation. Because otherwise it's, it's just behavior modification. It's just doing something because we want this to happen. We're not recognizing the fact that there's a real spiritual battle at play, that God is really moving and changing and transforming. And the point is this, biblical self-control goes to the deepest part of us, our heart. And I don't necessarily mean that physical, biological organ that's beating in here. I, I'm, I'm referring specifically to our spirit, to the, something that's far beyond our physical bodies. The recognition that, that we, were, we, were, we, we are a spirit. We were created a spirit that is eternal, that lives within the vessel that you have. And some of us, we look at our, our vessel and we say, oh, you know, I, I, I wish I had an upgrade. I wish this. You know what? Let me just say right now, God has given you the, the, the physical vessel you have to be able to be a tool within the kingdom. To be able to share and to express his love through our words, our actions, our thoughts, all that we are. Biblical self-control goes far beyond the, 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 the things that we do, far beyond the actions that we take and, and cuts to the heart of where we are and who we are. The reality though is from which source do we find this truth? As we embrace the, the SOAP method we talked about last week, one of the things specifically that I engage in, and let me just ask real quick, just a quick show of hands, how many of you got your homework done from last week? 
studied at least three times this week? A few of you? How many at least one? One time. Okay. All right. I will, I will take it. Partial credit, but I'll take it. Backing up and looking at the previous passage helps us to learn a lot specifically about where we're at. And I'm going to back up for just a moment. Verse 39, we're not going to go real far, just verse 39. What was happening before Jesus was arrested? What was going on in this specific solemn place where Judas knew where he was going to be and he brought this crowd and it was all premeditated and put together? Verse 39 says, Jesus went out as usual, as per his normal routine, his normal rhythm, as per usual, he went to this place, the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And so in his regular routine, Jesus went to this, this place, this place of solitude, away from all the confusion, away from all the distraction. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Not pray that, you know, my broken finger would heal or that my aunt's cousin's dog would get better. No, pray that you would not fall into temptation. What an amazing focus that is. He withdrew. It's almost like he knew some things were going to happen. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In essence saying, I don't want to walk through the pain that's going to be coming. I don't want to walk through this difficult time, but I recognize, God, that this is your will. And if you want me to do it, unless there's any other way, if you want me to do it, I will. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. As he prayed in God's will, strength came to him to face the issues that were before him. And verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And here he is in this very serious and very solemn, very, very, uh, very uh, intimate moment with his disciples. And then all of a sudden, these people march up the hill. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who is called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Think about, think about the context of what's taking place. They're in this quiet place up on the hill. They're praying together. He's having this moment where he's teaching his disciples how to pray to fight temptation. And all of a sudden, coming up on the hill behind him is this loud crowd with clubs and swords and, 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 and you know, like a mob coming to, to, to grab Jesus and to bring him away, to tear him from his followers. And so they're coming up on the hill and it breaks the whole silence and recognize for a moment the temptation that would have arose in that moment. But also recognize the fact that the reality that Jesus didn't engage in the temptation that was before him because what I would say, this, this, this phrase you probably heard before, the hay was in the barn. Meaning, and some of you are like, yeah, I wish my hay was in the barn. But meaning right here that, that Jesus had, had spent the time, had been engaged with, with, with God. He had walked in this place of recognizing, God, I want your will in my life. I want your strength in my life. And God granted that strength. And sometimes we walk into a place where we find temptation or perhaps you, you've experienced temptation and it's just so easy to give in. It's so easy to allow God to do whatever, maybe to avoid what his will is or to step into some kind of blatant sin, whatever it might be. And part of that reason is because there's this recognition that there's this connection with God is not strong or non-existent altogether. 
What Christ is demonstrating here isn't just self-control. He's also demonstrating the fact that self-control comes from a source of being engaged with the creator, the God who loves you and who loves me. And as we engage in him, as we grant this opportunity to be able to experience him in a a very real way, the bottom line is this, true self-control, true self-control, not behavior modification, but true self-control is a gift from above. It's a gift from above. And the good thing about that gift specifically, and every time you receive a gift, especially if it's a gift that has some kind of a tangible use, like, you know, if it's clothing or a tool or, or something that you use, there's a, there's a use for it. There's a way that you can enact it. You can use it. So true self-control is a gift from above produced in and through us by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Think about that moment, that recognition that God gives you and gives me the gift of being able to experience self-control with the one who created us. We can all agree that sin exists in the world and that sin is ushered in through temptation. At the same time, God, the creator of all, the lover of all, recognizes that, that, that darkness and that, that difficult place. And he grants us the opportunity to be able to experience and to practice self-control. Now, self-control is is not a gift that we receive passively, but we receive it actively. We're not the source, but we're the active and involved party. We're the participant. We open the gift and we live it. We we are promised the gift of self-control, yet we must must take it by force. We must take it and say, yes, I, I engage in what you have for me. Let me just say, and I, I, I bridged this earlier, you may have willpower. You may have the willpower to be able to, to say no to this marshmallow. Which some of you are like, that's gross anyway. If I had to put a pulled pork sandwich on this uh, plate, you probably would have been more apt to come up here and grab it during the sermon, right? It, it, you, you see that. Right? But you may have the power to say, no, I don't want to do that. Let me just say that defined by the world's standards, willpower is simply just our action. And if you were able to, to have willpower and to fight off eating the marshmallow or whatever, whatever thing is in your life, let me just say, the person who gets the glory for your willpower is you, not God. And so therefore, as you attempt to practice what you might call or define as self-control, it isn't self-control, it's, it's self-promotion. Self-control actually promotes the one who granted us life, which is God. We want God, we want Jesus to get the glory for our actions, for our self-control. And ultimately our controlling ourselves is about being controlled by God, being controlled and loving him in our life. So what do we take from this passage? Just a few things I just want to mention. These aren't in your notes, but we rely on God ultimately. God is the giver, the lover of, 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 of life and the giver of us being able to walk through and navigate this life, even in the midst of the darkness we might walk through. At the same time, there is play, there's always a place for prayer and preparation in our spirit and who we are and what we're about. We have the opportunity to be able to grow and to know him. And in many cases, God wants us, as we walk into a place of temptation, he wants us to already have this relationship with him. Take advantage of that time. And then finally, even in the midst of pain, anguish, and, and, and sorrow, Christ is present. And he's there. And he's your advocate no matter what you walk through. Now, sure, there are practical things that help you in this. I recognize that sometimes the environment you put yourself in, your peers, whether you're a, a child or an adult, your peers can impact the decisions that you make. Sometimes in a good way, we call that accountability. 
Certainly prayer is a, is, a, is a wonderful form to be able to engage with God. Silence is a good place to be in that. I'll mention this too. You've probably heard it before. Garbage in, garbage out is a, is a, is a real and lasting timeless principle where we recognize if, if we are filling ourselves with garbage, the recognition is when temptation comes, that garbage is going to spill out. As we look at God's answers to prayer specifically, we recognize there's three ways he answers most cases. There's probably some debate here, but there's yes, when we pray in his will, yes. There's no, meaning no, I've got something better you probably don't know about. And then there's a lot of times, specifically when we talk about temptation itself, there's not right now. And sometimes that temptation sits before us, maybe for a short period or long period, maybe it keeps coming back here and there. And we think, God, I've been praying, I've been asking, and this not right now answer keeps coming back. Let me just say, in the midst of temptation, this is great, because I I think about this with the context of fasting. I was having a conversation with, with someone about fasting recently and what it can do to remind you to pray. Every time you have that stomach pain, it's an opportunity to be reminded. Something that Satan meant for evil brings forth an opportunity for you to be able to go to the Father. But think about this for just a moment. Temptation is just another way for you and I to glorify our God. And in that we grow, and in that we learn to be more like him, and in that we learn to, to, to experience him in a much deeper way. I know that today was not a specific sermon that, that highlighted or detailed the reality of what it means to be a father, what it means to, to live and to grow as a father. But what I will say right now to the fathers in the rooms or those that have the opportunity to be able to, to step in and be the father for someone else, is certainly this is for everybody. But I just want to say this specifically. This is a moment where this is possibly one of the greatest gifts you can give is to experience or to demonstrate self-control in the lives of the people around you. And so no one else is off the hook, but certainly fathers, as you sit in the room right now, as you join online, may this be, future fathers as well, may this be an opportunity for something to stick that says, you know what, if anything, I'm going to demonstrate as I walk through the fruits of the Spirit, I'm going to demonstrate self-control so I can glorify my God and I can build up the people who God has placed within my sphere of influence. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this day. Just as, as we've already done so, we recognize that this is a place uh, of worship. This is a place where we worship you in many different facets. And one of the ways that we can worship you, God, is through reading your word and applying it. And sometimes we'll have responses in this room where we, we take communion together with, through the Lord's Supper. Maybe we have a time where we pray at the altar or we, we stand and sing. God, sometimes the response, though, is simply to go and live differently. And my prayer, God, this morning is as we go from this place, myself included, that we would take heed of Jesus' example of what it means to be prepared and then also to act in or, or a lack of act in the face of temptation. God, to glorify you first, regardless of what we want or what difficulties we perceive to be before us, may God in all respects, in everything that we do, may we honor, may we glorify, may we lift you up. God, we recognize that temptation exists in the world. We recognize that sin exists in the world. And I pray right now that as we recognize temptation, that we wouldn't recognize it as some insurmountable thing, some some force that we can't fight off, but may we see it as an opportunity for your Holy Spirit to glorify and to, and to to, to bring forth the opportunity to be able to reveal your truth, your love, and your provision. God, may we step into that, not just the fathers in the room, but all of us. May we say yes to you. May God, we love you first. And love others as well. 
in our lives, in our actions, in our words, in our deeds. So when we go from this place, may we practice your intended self-control. And all of us said together, amen. Amen. Let me read this benediction. Christian self-control is not finally about bringing our bodily passions under our own control, but under the control of Christ, the power of the Spirit. Because self-control is a gift produced in and through us by God's Spirit, Christians can and should be the people on the planet most hopeful about growing in self-control. Go this week recognizing that you don't go it alone, but the Spirit goes alongside you. The Spirit loves you, and God the Father has granted opportunity for you to grow in self-control. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.